Father, we need to hear your voice. We invite your spirit, the spirit of truth, to enlighten our minds and also our hearts. Would you move us? Would you compel us? Would you show us your love in new and fresh ways? As we look into your word, which we talked about two weeks ago, is a treasure that has come to us through sacrifice. Father, may we treasure these words and may they change our lives. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It was a pilgrimage that he had dreamed on taking. And finally, as he got to go on that journey, he was getting closer and closer to his destination. And as he got closer and closer, he began to be a little bothered by what he saw. You see, he'd grown up in poverty. He was the son of a miner, peasants. His father worked day in and day out in the mine, hoping to be able to send his son off to college to get a better degree and a better place in life than he had had. Maybe some of you had parents like that. Thank them for, 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 for what they've done for you. But as he got closer, he began to be bothered. You see, he had just come from his own convent. He was a new monk. And in his convent, he had been fasting and praying to the point where he was going to nearly die from fasting. Uh, He, in his own words, he described it that way. But not only that, the poverty that he experienced in their self-denial, in their convent, was such that he would have to go around from door to door begging for food. This is the type of existence that he had. And Martin Luther was sent on a journey to Rome. And as he's getting closer and closer to Rome, suddenly things don't, they don't look quite like he expected. Things look a little different than he hoped to see because as he got closer to Italy, he began to see how beautiful the churches were and what the the monks were living like and the wealth, the extravagance, what they had, the opulence. And he The great controversy, page 124, describes it like this. Endowed with a princely revenue, the monks dwelt in splendid apartments, attired themselves in the richest and most costly robes, and feasted at sumptuous table. You imagine what this monk who would beg for bread thinks as he sees other monks living off of this princely revenue and just enjoying themselves. With painful misgivings, Luther contrasted this scene with the self-denial and hardship of his own life. His mind was becoming perplexed. And I praise God that this man's mind was perplexed. Praise God that as he went into Rome and he saw the indulgence, the profligacy of the, the, the ruling elite religious class, that he recognized that something was wrong. You know, last week we began our journey through Daniel chapter 8. You're welcome to pull out your Bible to look at Daniel chapter 8 again. And, and this week we find something, well, let, let's, let's look again at these first two animals. And you remember Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, we had four beasts that come out of the sea, and the sea represented the peoples, and the winds represented the strife, and it's the strife of nations, and there are these ferocious beasts that come out. But in Daniel chapter 8, we found, what was the first beast? He's a ram, and he's got one big horn and one a little bit smaller horn, and we learned that it represented the Medes and the Persians. And then the other one is Greece, represented by a goat, with a large prominent horn coming out of his, uh, representing Alexander the Great. And he comes rushing after, and it defines, amazing thing we learned last week, or two weeks ago, it actually defines who this is, that this is Greece, hundreds of years in advance. It's something that, that secular scholars of the Bible are, are mystified by. But notice these animals. They're incredibly different from what we saw in Daniel chapter 7, aren't they? You see any differences here? I mean, which animals would you rather face on your way home from church today? I mean, that goat looks pretty fierce, but I think I would take that goat and that ram over any of the other beasts. There's something different going on in Daniel chapter 8. In fact, Daniel chapter 8, we mentioned, is now in Hebrew. And these animals, there's something different about them. Richard Davidson, one of my favorite professors at uh, the seminary, says that, wrote this in the, a song for the sanctuary. These two animals were used in Israel's sacrificial 
worship service. And we're going to learn in coming weeks that, that these two animals were actually used on a specific day of Israel's worship service. But these are sacrificial animals that would be brought for sacrificial service at the sanctuary. There's something different about them. You remember what the sanctuary is all about? Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, when, when God appears to Moses and shows him his glory on the mountain, and then he gives him the Ten Commandments, and then after that he gives him this, this, these laws for Israel, and one of the things he tells them is verse 8 of Exodus chapter 25, and let them make me a sanctuary, and say the last part of the verse with me, that I may dwell among them. What type of a picture of God is that? Is it a God who is distant, who wants to stay away from his people? The purpose of the sanctuary was that he could come into their midst. He needed them to know that he is holy, that he's completely different, that they can't just think that they can go on living the way that they are and that it's sustainable eternally. And so he had the sanctuary to reveal that he wanted to come close to them and that he himself was providing the way back to fellowship with himself. And he read chapters earlier in Exodus chapter 19. He said he got them from Egypt and he pulled them out as his special treasure and he brought them on English, on, on eagle's wings. He brought them to himself to be with himself. Again and again it emphasizes the purpose was that God could be with his people. And we find this about the sanctuary throughout the Bible. Here we saw it in Exodus 25 verse 8. But notice in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 it says, they shall call his name... Emmanuel, which is translated, what does that say? God with us. Jesus came and took on human flesh. And John actually writes it this way in John chapter 1. Uh, oh, actually, we'll get to that later. But he, that he actually came and he tabernacled among us. But in the end of the Bible, actually, I think it's supposed to be here. So John chapter 1 and verse 14, you can look it up. It says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, or dwelt among us. The word there is actually, he pitched his tent. He came down where we were, and he, he set up his house. He set up his tent so that he could be right there with us. And it's the same Greek word that's used in the Old Testament to describe this tabernacle that was in the wilderness. Jesus himself became this for us in coming to be God with us. It's a beautiful picture. And then it ends with this in Revelation chapter 21. We could have started in Genesis where the Garden of Eden is really set up as a sanctuary, but in the end, we're put on the new earth. And this is what we're told. Revelation 21 verse 3 says, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Revelation 21.3. God wants to be with you. God wants to be with you. It, if you're anything like me, it's astounding to me that God would want to be with me. That God would set up his throne here on this rebellious planet. That he would come close to somebody like me. But God wants to be with you. No matter who you are. No matter where you've been. No matter what you've done. So that book I told you started I quoted from to begin with a song for the sanctuary came out this year it's a it's a great read if you want just as a reference book on the sanctuary uh, it's funny because Dick Davidson was working on this when he was my professor at Andrews back 10 years ago it's 1178 pages it's a long book on the sanctuary but he says there's more written in the Bible, possibly on the sanctuary, than any other topic. But we're going to look at what he says, the ultimate point of the sanctuary, what the sanctuary is all about. It says, the ultimate meaning of the sanctuary is personal communion with the God of the sanctuary. The ultimate meaning of the sanctuary is personal communion with the God of the sanctuary. Isn't that beautiful? goes on to say, the sanctuary is not just an object of beauty, a doctrine of truth, correct ethical behavior, or occasional celebrations. It is a way of life in constant, intimate fellowship with our beloved in his heavenly abode, the temple. Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. It's such a beautiful picture of what God is like. God wants to be with you. 
So we see that there is a sanctuary context already just with the beast that we went into more detail about last week. But let's continue on looking at the horn that comes. First there's the notable horn, then there's the four horns, and then there's the little horn that comes up that we looked at last week as representing the pagan and religious phase of Rome. So let's continue on and look at verse 10. And it grew up, talking about that little horn, to the host of heaven. Notice, it was conquering horizontally. Now it's conquering on a vertical level. It's focusing on tearing down things in the heavenly realm. Just like in Daniel chapter 7, the little horn was speaking pompous words against the Most High. And it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now, there are plenty of, of, of Bible scholars who will tell you that this represents a small king, Antiochus Epiphanes, in the uh, history of Greece. If, if, if you'd like to study that out with me, I don't think we should take the time for that today, but I have a, a long list of reasons that I don't think that's a good interpretation. I understand why people come to that, um, but I think there are good reasons not to go that direction. But we won't spend a lot of time on that today. We notice that this is going up towards heaven. He's casting down the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled on them. We looked at that a little bit last week. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, which is the same word when Joshua comes in contact with the commander of the host. And he's told that, and he, he takes off his, his shoes. He's, he's on holy ground as he's there before Jericho. This is, this is a sign of divinity, the prince of the host. This is the prince of peace, I believe. This is Jesus. So somebody is exalting themselves even as high. Notice it's self-exaltation, lifting themselves up to be like Jesus or at least to take his place. And by him, the daily, and I took out the word sacrifices because it's not there in the Hebrew, were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. We're going to just focus in on this one line today. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Where is the place of his sanctuary? Hebrews chapter 8 Verse 1, Hebrews is an excellent book if you want to understand and grapple with Christ's heavenly ministry. It says this, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Jesus is our high priest and he's seated at the right hand. He's seated on the throne in heaven. You have the Son of Man with a heart beating like your heart, lungs like your lungs, except for with a perfect, uh, without the sin that's involved, on the throne of the universe. It's a beautiful picture of one who's like us. Earlier in Hebrews, it says, therefore, if we have a, a high priest like this, we can come with boldness to the throne of grace because he wants to be with us. We've come to recognize this through seeing Jesus and what he's like. Okay, but let's keep going. Who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So is this talking about the sanctuary that Moses erected? No. This is talking about something different, the heavenly sanctuary. That, that, the, in fact, when Moses is told to build a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, verse 9 says, and it's to be formed after the pattern. The word is pattern. It's to be uh, after what he saw, this model that he saw in heaven. And probably didn't look exactly the same shape and size, but the picture of salvation is what is going on in this heavenly sanctuary. This is essential for our understanding that, that Christ is working for us in the heavenly sanctuary. He's on our side, as is God the Father, as is the Holy Spirit. They are working as a holy trinity for your salvation and my salvation. It's incredibly good news. That's the place of the sanctuary, right? So it's in heaven, but somehow this, this is going to attempt to, to draw down on that, to cast that down to the earth. Notice, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now, that word place in the Hebrew, uh, Davidson points this out as well, is actually a word that can be translated foundation. And it's twice in the Psalm, Psalm 89 and Psalm 97. Notice Psalm 89 verse 14. Righteousness and judge justice are the foundation of your throne. It's good news. 
How God operates is entirely different. The book of Daniel is a book of contrasts between the way men operate, the way his kingdoms operate, and the way God operates. And God operates with righteousness and justice. The place of his throne, the foundation of his throne, the foundation of the sanctuary somehow is cast down. This righteousness and justice that God's kingdom is based upon as somebody exalts themselves or some organization or, or, or group exalts themselves to be like the most high or to be like the prince. Thankfully, we can trust that that throne is still there. Mercy and truth go before your face. So the place of his sanctuary was cast down. What does that look like? What does it look like for somebody to, to take something in heaven and cast it down to earth? Well, let's go back to thinking about what the earthly church has looked like. You may not recognize this, but this is actually the oldest church that we have found in our archaeology, at least that I was able to find out about. It's the Dura, Dura Europis Church <clears throat> in Syria. And it's actually a house church that was from 233 to 256. In 256, the town was abandoned, and after that, it wasn't uh, there anymore. But you notice that this is a simple house church. This is Already in the third century, this is the type of churches that we have found of what people are worshiping in. That look pretty simple? It's just somebody's house that's been modified slightly in order to be the place of worship just a few hundred years after Christ. Now fast forward to the 14, the, the, let's see, I guess this is the 1500s, and you find this being built. This is St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It's really beautiful, I understand, if you're able to go inside. Uh, my dad can tell you there's a few restrictions about being able to get there and being able to see inside of it. Make sure you're not wearing shorts. Um, there's, <laughs> there's paintings. That, it's extravagant. There's gold. It's ornate. It's, it gives you a feeling that God is very, very, very big. How did the church go from this tiny little house church to this? How did this come about? How did the church begin to look like this? Notice what the great controversy says about what the Dark Age religion began to do. It says the religious service of the Roman church is a most impressive ceremonial. Its gorgeous display and solemn rites fascinate the senses of the people and silence the voice of reason and of conscience. It's so awe-inspiring. It's so reverence, maybe moving, that it silences the voice of reason and conscience. The eye is charmed. Magnificent churches, imposing processions, golden altars, jeweled shrines, choice paintings, and exquisite sculpture appeal to the love of beauty. Is beauty a good thing? Came from God. Beauty is a good thing. I like stained glass windows. Just, just fine. I think they're beautiful. But if this is what we need in order to worship, we're missing the point. The ear also is captivated. The music is unsurpassed. The rich notes of the deep-toned organ. We heard some beautiful organ music today. Blending with the melody of many voices as it swells through the lofty domes and pillared aisles of her grand cathedrals cannot fail to impress the mind with awe and reverence. The outward splendor, pomp, and ceremony that only mocks the longings of the sin-sick soul is an evidence of inward corruption. An inward corruption that Martin Luther saw as he came into the city of Rome and he witnessed this extravagance that was only a cloak for the way people were living that was entirely unlike Jesus. The religion of Christ needs not such attractions to recommend it. In the light shining from the cross, true Christianity appears so pure and lovely that no external decorations can enhance its true worth. We don't need anything external to make Jesus attractive. We can worship in a field. We can worship in a house. We can worship in Templeton Hills. And Jesus is beautiful because Jesus is Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And it's the cross that matters. Not a painting of the cross. Not an image of the cross. But what he actually did for us on the cross when God himself said, you are more valuable than himself and I want to be with you for eternity. 
Notice this, it goes on to say, a religion of externals is attractive to the unrenewed heart. I read that line and suddenly it hit me. A religion of externals. It's all too easy to to point back and say, yeah, they got it all wrong back there. But is it possible that I can get so wrapped up in the externals of what worship needs to look like in order for me to be odd and in reverence towards God that I missed the point people met for hundreds of years in houses around the family table that the rest of the week that house was used to live in. Churches changed and much of what we have today came through the dark ages. And we have to be careful that we don't hang on so closely to our traditions for the sake of the tradition. If the tradition helps us in coming to Jesus, in knowing his word, in coming in contact with Jesus, then great. If it's biblical, then let's hang on to it. But if it's not, then to fight over these things, to hang on to these things as if these are what matter, represent that my heart is an unrenewed heart. I'm missing what it is all about, the attractive loveliness of the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. But how did the church practically get from this to this? I mean, how does an organization build that kind of wealth? How does an organization get to the point where it can build this incredible opulence? And if you look at how much wealth is there, this is one of the most wealthy organizations on the planet. How did this humble group of Christ followers end up having this type of wealth. The Great Controversy, page 59. And I just encourage you, study out the history of the Protestant Reformation. Pick up a book and read about it. Read about it online. Pick up the book, The Great Controversy, as it has fascinating evidence. And I want to ask you something. Don't just read the last chapters of The Great Controversy. They're awesome. But if you skip the middle of The Great Controversy... You miss righteousness by faith. You miss the love of God. Those things are described in the end, but they're not dwelt upon to the extent that they are throughout the heart of the book as it looks at the Protestant Reformation. So I encourage you to read the the whole book. Read any history book on the Protestant Reformation. Well, not any probably, but reputable ones that are really following history. Still another fabrication was needed to enable Rome to profit by the fears and the vices of her adherents. This was supplied by the doctrine of indulgences, right? So something began to happen. The church was grasping for power. We looked at two weeks ago how the church grasped for power by taking the word of God and saying, no, you can't have it in your common language. And we're the interpreters of it. And we're going to keep it from being translated into a vernacular, the common tongue. We're going to keep it from you being able to come in contact with it. Well, that wasn't all. We, looked at a, we listed off a number of things, but something else that began to happen was, you know, the church could excommunicate you and you no longer had the possibility of salvation outside of the church was the way it was believed. You had to partake of, of the um, mass and the Eucharist and all of that. But not only that, they began to have it where you would come to the priest and you would confess to that priest. And that priest would give you penance that you had to do. Here's the list of things. You confess your sins and you have to do these things in order to be forgiven. It's a merit-based system. A system where I have to figure out the right things to do in order to be saved. Well, eventually, that took on the form of, hey, we're going to have this power over people because they want salvation. So let's start charging for their salvation. Let's start, if you sin, then you need to pay us a certain amount in order to be set free. I want to give you just a a little glimmer of what that might have looked like from the film Luther. Let's see if we can get the audio for this. Let's try it one more time. Do we have audio for this? Good people of Uteberg, have you ever burned your hand in the fire? Even one finger made raw by the flame will torment you throughout the night. Is it not so? Imagine then, your entire body burning. Not for one sleepless night, 
Not for a week, but for all eternity. Are we to be spared the fires of damnation on the judgment day? Tonight, your Pope, the Vicar of Christ, sends you a gift. A gift to save you from such fires. A special indulgence granted for the building of St. Peter's Church in Rome, where the bones of the apostles lie mouldering, exposed to wind and rain, desecrated by wild animals. Take heed the words of your Holy Father who says, lay a stone for St. Peter's and you lay the foundation for your own salvation and happiness in heaven. How? With this indulgence. When? Tonight. And only tonight. Seek the Lord while he is near. Here is your raft. Take hold. certain your crippled child can run to Jesus. These learned monks are standing by to write down your name or the name of a loved one, dead or alive, on this. Your passport to the celestial joys of paradise. Isn't that crazy? This guy, Tetzel, he's said to have said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Purgatory was this doctrine they came up with that we're all so abhorrent to God that we need to writhe in pain for he can torture enough so that we're finally purified and then we can go to heaven and he'll pull us out of purgatory. And so Tetzel's teaching that oh, your loved ones are probably in purgatory right now. If you'll just pay enough money, you can get them out of purgatory. So he's capitalizing on fear and on vice, sin, in order to enable people to give. And John Tetzel, uh, was it John? Tetzel had, had uh, some debts that he owed, and he was using this, and he was a very good salesman. He actually had some crimes that he'd been forgiven uh, or granted absolution for, for. And so he went around, and he came to Martin Luther's town. And this is actually the enactment of that. And as he comes through there where Martin Luther is practicing as a priest, he sells indulgences to some of Martin Luther's parishioners. And they come to Martin Luther, and they come to the confessional, and they're confessing to him. And then when it comes to penance time, he's like, they tell him, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Look at I have this piece of paper. I bought this indulgence. He said, are you kidding me? <laughs> you think that, that paying money to the church in order to build St. Peter's Basilica, you want to know how the church went from these tiny house churches to St. Peter's Basilica? It was on the backs of people's shame and guilt in a workspace system. Well, that angered Martin Luther. The Great Controversy records it like this. The Roman church had made merchandise of the grace of God. The tables of the money changers were set up beside her altars. Notice that language. The tables of the money changers were set up beside her altars. And the air resounded with the shouts of buyers and sellers using the language from the Gospels. But the very means adopted for Rome's aggrandizement provoked the deadliest blow to her power and greatness. <laughs> Daniel chapter 8 says she would be broken without human means, this, great, this, this little horn. And it was this very self-aggrandizement, this principle of self-exaltation that led to her downfall in the end, or, or, or at the end of this time period, I should say. Uh, Martin Luther, one day, uh, October 22, actually, 1517, he went to the church in Wittenberg, and he knew there was going to be a lot of people coming in, and he nailed what we know as the 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg church. But what it was actually titled was Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. His whole point was, the church can't do this. Priests can't do this. Nobody has the right before God to offer to sell you forgiveness. That was a big part 
of what he was teaching in the 95 Thesis. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Earth became the place where Satan misconstrued what God's character looks like. And I know it was Satan because we go to Ezekiel chapter 28 and watch this. Ezekiel chapter 28 says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were the anointed cherub who covers. You were there in the presence of God, the one represented on the Ark of the Covenant as being one of the archangels. This is what the archangels were represented in the tabernacle is looking like right there in the Ark of the Covenant, right there by God's throne. You were one of these anointed cherubs who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. I put you there. You were perfect in, be- in, in your beauty. You were perfect in your di- ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. That word for iniquity is injustice. And the idea is here that, that he began to look at God and to question that righteousness that is the foundation of his throne, that justice that is the foundation of God's throne, till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your, what's the word? Let's try it one more time. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mouth of God. I cast you to the ground. By def- you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Notice, he's got some sort, he's cast down and he defiles something, sanctuaries, by the multitude of his trading. That word for trading is the word that we find in the New Testament that's used for a house of merchandise. It's used here talking about the king of Tyre as well as Lucifer. The kingdom of Tyre, they they had a well-established trade, and they traded with lots of different people. And the idea is here that that he's stepping down from his God-ordained position, and he's going around heaven, and he's questioning the justice, the righteousness, the love, of God. Is God really selfless? Is he really, or is he really self-serving? Richard Davidson talking about this verse says, sanctuaries, plural. On earth, the fallen cherub is portrayed as possessing rival sanctuaries to that of the most high sanctuaries that he defiles by his iniquities. Sanctuaries, plural. The great controversy says it this way, page 569. It is Satan's constant effort. How often? Just in the dark ages, constant, his constant effort to misrepresent the character of God, the nature of sin, and the real issues at stake in the great controversy. We looked at last time in our series on Daniel, the great principles that are at stake in the great controversy, how this is brought out so clearly throughout the Bible. It's selfishness and love. It's righteousness or sin. It's It's a clear controversy between Christ and Satan. His sophistry lessens the obligation of the divine law and gives men license to sin. So the power of this system was, hey, if you pay and you buy this, it doesn't matter what sins you commit after this. You can go on sinning because you have merited enough favor. Why did they begin building as big a churches as they did? I learned a new word this week. They actually began building martyrions which were on the bones of the martyr. St. Peter's Basilica is supposedly where St. Peter is buried. And, and there's something holier about being there on the gravesite of this saint who you can now pray to, who you can now bring candles and light them and pray to them. This picture that God is distant from us, and so we need somebody holier to get us to God. Notice what it goes on to say. At the same time, he causes them to cherish false conceptions of God so that they regard him with fear and hate rather than with love. They're motivated by fear or hope of reward, but not by love, selfless love for God. The cruelty inherent in his own character is attributed to the creator. It is embodied in systems of religion and expressed in modes of worship. And this is not just talking about the dark ages. Notice what it goes on to say. By perverted conceptions of the divine attributes, heathen nations were led to believe human sacrifices necessary to secure the favor of deity. And horrible cruelties have been perpetrated under the various forms of idolatry. 
You see, this is the story throughout history. So many world religions have been based on this idea that I need to merit God's favor. The sanctuary is that God came down to dwell with us. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. That he desperately wants us to be saved. Every other religion teaches you that God is far away and that you've got to somehow get yourself to God. I love the message last week on Galatians. I, props to Matt for tackling the entire letter to the Galatians. That's an incredible undertaking that I am not brave enough to do, but he did it. And I learned some valuable things through that. But I loved how he pointed out, in Jesus, faithfulness to the covenant was accomplished. God's favor is yours in Christ. It's already accomplished. There is absolutely nothing you can add to that. I heard one amen. There's nothing you can add to what Jesus did. I may be hard of healing. All right. Therefore, Ezekiel goes on to say, I brought fire from your midst, from from within your systems, Lucifer. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. The good news is this will not last. It's coming to an end. It will be broken without human means. God will take care of this. I'm not the one that can solve this. Steve brought this out in early church. He said, this is good news that the fact is that God's going to take care of this in the end. He is the one that solves the problem. Notice what Daniel 8.13 goes on to say. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be? This is the cry of Bible prophecy. This is horrendous, this picture you're giving us of what is going to take place in misrepresenting God's character. How long will that go on? Concerning the daily and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, crucial verse that we're not going to break down the time frame today, but we'll get into it. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, and then let's focus in on this. Then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. What was cast down to the earth? The sanctuary, it says, was, was cast down through, through this little horn power. And it says the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. What does that look like? And why does it matter for you and me today? Here's the thing. When we look back in history, we realize that this didn't just take place in Roman history when, when Christianity and the state combined, when we saw the union of church and state. But we can look back further than that, and we see it in the Jewish religion. The Great Controversy, page 568, says it this way. There is a striking similarity between the Church of Rome and the Jewish church at the time of Christ's first advent. And get this. At the time of Christ's first advent, were they expecting Jesus soon, or the Messiah soon to come? So they were Adventists. Were they keeping the Sabbath? They were... Seventh-day Adventists. And they had the same exact problem that the Church of Rome had in the Dark Ages. So we can't just sit here and say, oh, good thing I'm in the right church today. That's an external religion that's pleasing to the carnal heart. What I need is my heart changed on the inside. I need a, a heart that is recreated after God's heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. What happened back then? You remember it in John chapter 2. As Jesus has called, uh, has had this interaction with a few of his disciples, he's gone to the wedding feast and worked his first miracle. The beautiful thing about Jesus is when he brings the kingdom, the first thing he does in bringing the kingdom is add joy to a wedding feast to help a family out. Matt pointed out this awesome point that I hadn't thought about in Galatians last week, that, that the gospel leads to people eating together in peace, to having fellowship together. The gospel is not just about what we think up here, but how we treat each other. And here's the thing. If I'm having problems in my marriage, if I'm having problems with my kids, if I'm having problems in my work, if I'm having problems with my neighbor, I can't just come to church and do some sort of penance and think that I'm good. I need to search my heart and look and look and look to Jesus until this is changed so that my marriage is changed, my friendships are changed, my relationships with my enemies are changed. Because that's the only thing that matters. So here you have Jesus after working that feast, the miracle at the wedding of Cana. He goes into the temple. It's the Passover, the first Passover of his ministry. And as he goes there in the temple, he sees them exchanging money. And 
the short of this is that people traveled from a long distance to come to Jerusalem, some of them. A long distance journey to, to come. It's fascinating how many uh, weeks, actually, some people would spend traveling. And so it wasn't practical to bring your animals with you if you came from a distance. Others came who didn't have wealth and they didn't have flocks and stuff themselves. And you also were required for the redemption of your soul to give a half shekel in the temple coin. So this was the requirement as you came into the temple and Jesus comes in the temple and this is what he finds. They're loudly disputing about how much is going to take place, how this exchange is going to take place. And they're exploiting people. And Jesus picks up a whip. What does it look like for Jesus to cleanse the sanctuary? When Jesus sees people that are oppressed, when injustice is happening to people, Jesus picks up a whip. And he doesn't use it on them. He merely looks at them and they run and they hide. But if you want to know what makes Jesus table flipping mad, it is when we put up barriers for people coming to God. When we make our externals of religion barriers to people getting to Jesus. We don't have to be worshiping here. We could be worshiping in our houses. So if we're going to fight about what it looks like in here, we've missed the gospel. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Exactly what Lucifer was using in Ezekiel chapter 28. If you look in the LXX, the the Septuagint, he was using merchandise in heaven. That's the, the background, I believe, for this. Is Satan tried to do that in God's own house by his own throne, questioning the justice of God and misrepresenting who God was. And this is what the religious leaders were doing. He said, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And they decide they want to kill him. But first they ask him, what's the sign that you should be able to do this? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple. And in three days... I will raise it up. They're like, huh? It took us 46 years to build this temple. But then John goes on to write, but they didn't know that he was talking about his own body. You see, Jesus is the temple that we need. Revelation actually goes on to say that there is no temple there because the lamb's there. He is God with us. Jesus is absolutely everything that you and I need. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. And when you get to the trial of Jesus, do you remember the one thing that they're able, the false witnesses, is they're trying to come up with how do we put Jesus to death? This is what they come up with in order to accuse Jesus. He said he could destroy the temple. And when he died and he said it is finished, the temple curtain split in two to reveal that Jesus is the way, not this old sanctuary here on earth. Well, if we wonder whether this is really important in Jesus' ministry, not only does he do it at the beginning Passover of his ministry, but at the end of his ministry, in Matthew chapter 21, we find that Jesus comes back to the sanctuary. After three and a half years of ministry, he comes back to the temple, and he finds that they're doing the exact same thing. And I love how The book Desire of Ages describes what was likely going on in their minds that that they had determined, we're never going to let this humble Galilean scare us off again. We're going back to our old ways. We're we're using this whole thing of indulgences. We're, We're going to make people think that if they have the right externals, that they're in. And we're going to go through this process. And Jesus isn't going to stop us this time. But as Jesus goes in, he doesn't pick up a whip this time. I didn't find a good picture for it. But he gets table flipping mad a second time. The two times he gets table flipping mad in his life is when people are stopped from coming to God by others who are religious leaders. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And then he says this, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56. In Isaiah chapter 56, 
We, we saw already the merchandise was from the fallen covering chair of Ezekiel chapter 28, but the house of prayer statement comes in Isaiah chapter 56, which talks about the eunuchs. You think you're excluded from the house of God? Grab a hold of the Sabbath and the covenant and you can come in. And the foreigner, the sons of the foreigner, you think you're excluded? You can come to the house of God if you grab a hold of the covenant. You grab a hold of the Sabbath. But not only that, it's a house of prayer, it goes on to say, for all nations, for all people. And then it says, and I'm going to gather the outcasts of Israel. The one that Israel has neglected, I'm going to pull them in. I'm going to gather them all in. You know, if you look at the end of the great controversy, there's a picture that there's a great big change that takes place where those who looked like they were following God suddenly disappear. And those who looked like they weren't following God suddenly come in to the church. And friends, that gives me pause. Say, where's my heart? This isn't about pointing anywhere else than to my own heart to say, has my heart been cleansed? Has this temple been cleansed? Den of Thieves is from Jeremiah chapter 7. I encourage you to read it, verses 5 to 11. There, it talks about if you execute justice, if you don't oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, or shed innocent blood, then the king's going to come in through your gates. And then it says, do you murder, steal, commit adultery, practice, uh, practice idolatry, the word's missing there, and then come and stand before me in this house and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? You think that the externals save you? It's the grace of Jesus Christ changing your heart from the inside out. Desire of Ages, page 157, describes it. It says, There came to this feast those who were suffering, those who were in want and distress. The blind, the lame, the deaf were there. Some were brought on beds. Many came who were too poor to purchase the humblest offering for the Lord, too poor even to buy food with which to satisfy their own hunger. These were greatly distressed by the statements of the priests. And that makes Jesus table-flipping mad. It makes Jesus ready to cast out all of the religious leaders to say, let's make a change here. The priests boasted of their piety. They claimed to be the guardians of the people, but they were without sympathy or compassion. The poor, the sick, the dying made their vain plea for favor. Their suffering awakened no pity in the hearts of the priests. God save us from being that type of witness to the world. But look at what happens after he flips the tables and they run from him. Verse 14 says, Then the blind, the lame, came to him in the temple and he healed them. The sanctuary became what it was designed for, a welcoming place for sinners, a welcoming place for those who need healing. That is what church is for. friend. Please, never be a barrier for somebody coming to Jesus. Don't put, point to externals. Invite them to look to Jesus, and he will take care of the externals. Then the blind, the lame, came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the, the religious, those that are in power, holding people in bondage, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. What is this ruckus going on in the temple? Jesus, why are you letting the children behave like this in church? Parents, thank you for bringing your kids to church. Please keep doing it. Don't ever worry about it. Please bring them here because what they need is Jesus. Just this week, I'm reading through Mark, and, and Jesus is, is, is questioned as to why he's always eating with sinners and tax collectors. And he says, it's not this, the, the, those who are well that need a physician. It's those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, you're welcome in our church if you're a sinner. If you are not, I welcome you here because I hope you'll see that you are a sinner. <laughs> I know all of you realize you need Jesus. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God wants to be with you. Hallelujah. God will not tolerate us making it difficult for others to come to him. It makes him table flipping mad. God wants to be with others through you. I invite you to open your eyes. 
to go out of your way to help anyone and everyone in need around you as the Spirit leads you. I was on my way to early service this morning, running late as usual, and I got to the intersection uh, of, uh, I come through Templeton and I got to the Los Tablas Road, and uh, here's a car being pushed through the intersection, a broken down car. I'm dressed a little bit nicer to, to come to church, and this guy is struggling to push the car up the road, and he's just trying to get it up the road. I'm thinking, I'm late, I've got to get to church, I'm wearing my church clothes, I have to help this guy. (laughs) That's the only thing that matters. Jesus said the entire Old Testament can be summarized as this. Love your neighbor as yourself. I should say, Paul says that actually. The whole law can be summarized. Jesus said it, that it's do unto others as you would have others do unto you. If I was pushing my car, my girlfriend was in it, my dog was barking, and it was broken down, and I couldn't get it up the hill, I would want somebody to help me, no matter what they were dressed like. (laughs) So I got to help him. I invite you just to open your eyes. Open your eyes to the way that Jesus wants to use you day in and day out to help everybody around you because that's what it's all about. Our vertical relationship should lead us to a horizontal empathy for the world around us. Then the blind, the lame, came to him in the temple and he healed them. May God fill us with his spirit so that we too can be agents of healing. And I invite you again, if you haven't already, uh, email me or text this number with the word serve, and you'll get on a list where we're coming up with various opportunities to serve. God will give you lots of them. You open your eyes, you'll see them. But if you'd like us to give you opportunities from the church, there's things that happen periodically that we'll send out a text, and it does not obligate you to it, but it simply gives you an awareness. There's a need there. And if you're available then you can come and serve, and it's made a difference in people's lives. Thank you to those of you who have stepped up and who are serving, um, and may God bless you as you go out to serve this week, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you. Thank you for showing us what God looks like, that you've come to heal that you've come to forgive and to save. Like we saw two weeks ago, you didn't even come to judge. You're the one who's on our side. Lord God, may we trust you. May we look to you. May we not be focused on ourselves, not do navel-gazing, not worry about the external so much as we worry about Jesus. And look to Jesus, look to your word, and allow your self-sacrificing love to change us from the inside out. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.